Hey there, welcome to the Snakebird Podcast. My name's Josh. And I'm Steve. Together we invite you to join us as we explore the mysteries of Scripture, the realm of God, and freedom through Christ. So spread out your wings and slither in place because this is Snakebird. Hey, Snakebirds, welcome back to another episode of the cast. Today we're going to continue where we left off last time, discussing a group of individuals specifically recognized for their achievements and their virtuosity, also known as saints. That's right, guys. We're diving back into round two, and uh, we've got some interesting characters going forward, don't we, Josh? Yeah, I think we have four more to look at. Yeah, we did two last time, but they were a little <laughs> bit longer. Yeah, and so we're gonna we're gonna hammer through these these saints. I don't know if hammer through was the best <laughs> way to describe it, but uh, let's just get into it, shall we? Yes. So, do you want me to go? Yeah, I'll go next because you, you, you me, you me, yeah, you ended us. Yes. We'll do the yeah, exactly. So, St. Augustine of Hippo is my next saint. Uh, Augustine was a theologian, a philosopher, the Bishop of Hippo, and one author wrote that he was perhaps the most significant Christian thinker after St. Paul. So, that, that's saying something. Um, it's also noted that his writings influenced the development of Western philosophy and Western Christianity, and we'll see why that is a little bit later as far as um, him influencing us even now. But he is viewed as one of the most important church fathers of the Latin church in the uh, patristic period. His works include The City of God on Christian Doctrine and Confessions. So let's get into the story of St. Augustine of Hippo. Mm. Starting with, he was born in 354 AD in the Roman province of Numidia. Uh, the region that he would later become bishop, we'll see. And much like some of the other saints, Augustine was also brought up in a house where his mother was the, I guess you could say, the religious backbone of the family. Uh, His mother's name was Monica, a very devout Christian woman who is now known as Saint Monica. And his father's name was Patricius. And it's said of his father that he was actually a pagan who converted to Christianity on his deathbed. So yet another household where the dad was kind of the unbeliever, the mom carried that that strong faith, and at least in his case, his dad looks like converted on his deathbed. But um, Augustine had a brother and sister as well in that home. Now... At the age of 11, Augustine was sent off to get a decent education where he learned Latin. Um, He was educated also on pagan beliefs and practices as well. And there's an interesting story Augustine tells about his early life where he, along with some friends, stole some fruit from the local garden. And there was something about the act of stealing being forbidden, that it was wrong, that made him want to do it. And this would be a very early seed that influenced his later writings on the need for grace because we humans are inclined to sin from birth. And he really recognized that early on in his life. So keep that in mind as we get to that part of his life here in a minute. But as we fast forward to age 17, Augustine was able to further pursue his education in Carthage. Um, A generous citizen apparently had paid his tuition And um, much like any first-year college student fresh out of high school, uh, Augustine started to get tangled up in the wrong crowd um, his mother had always warned him about. And much like Francis of Assisi, that's something that they both did. They got into a lifestyle of (laughs) of not, you know, not holy living. Yeah. (laughs) Lots of loose living. 
Loose. Yeah. At the same time, um, during all of that, he also developed a taste for knowledge as he went to school in Carthage. Uh, Even though he was raised a Christian, Augustine, during this time at school, became a Manichaean, which was the pagan Persian religion of dualism. So he was growing in knowledge, going to school, and he was, you know, the loose living, but he was also um, getting into this pagan practice. And he continually grew in his knowledge and reached a point where he actually became a professor himself. Uh, went on to teach grammar for about a year before moving to Carthage full-time to conduct a school of rhetoric for the next nine years of his life. And the ironic thing is, after that nine-year stretch of teaching, he had to uproot and leave because he was so disgusted with the loose living of students there, Hmm. which is interesting because that that was his beginning. Kids will be kids. You would think, you would think. Yeah. You would think, you would think. You would think, you would think. Yeah, but he he moved on because he was so disgusted with that uh, to establish a school in Rome where the brightest rhetoricians studied. And took a job after that in Milan in 384 to become a rhetoric professor there as well. And keep in mind, all of this teaching as a professor of rhetoric, it was all based in that pagan Persian religion. So he was a professor of not Christianity at all. It was very much... And I... I hate to call them pagans, but I think a lot of of professors we have now that are very against Christianity. Mm. It reminds me a lot of them. Um, who is it? Kevin Sorbo. I wonder if he looked a little bit like him, because he's the, he's done the professors yeah. in Christian movies. Anyway, <laughs> God's not dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, So Augustine, he was constantly learning um, the makeup and foundations of many different belief systems during all of this, and he was teaching them as well. Uh, One author writes, Although Augustine spent 10 years as a Manichaean, he was never an initiate or elect, but an auditor, the lowest level in his religion's hierarchy. So Augustine started to have doubts about this religion that he had served for nine years for several different reasons. One of them was uh, a disappointing meeting that he had had with a bishop in that hierarchy. But we see that his heart started to turn for many different reasons at this point um, towards Christianity, not only because of his recent doubts, but because he had some friends actually um, at these schools that were Christians that were influencing him and his own mother who was constantly there planting seeds in his life um, for the Christian faith. She was a very strong believer. So he had some people planting seeds in his life. That's something important for us to remember, too, as as we seem to plant seeds in people's lives uh, that we know that it seems like it's a lost cause. Um, eventually, he came around. Uh, I did read from one source that one of the turning points for Augustine was a day that he heard about two men who had suddenly been converted to Christianity by reading the life of St. Antony, and the author writes, He felt terrible ashamed of himself. What are we doing, he cried to his friend Alpius. Unlearned people are taking heaven by force, while we, with all our knowledge, are so cowardly that we keep rolling around in the mud of our sins. Full of bitter sorrow, Augustine flung himself into the garden and cried out to God, How long more, O Lord? Why does not this hour put an end to my sins? Just then he heard a child singing, Take up and read. Thinking that God intended him to hear those words, he picked up the book of the letters of St. Paul and read the first passage his gaze fell on. It was just what Augustine needed. For in it, St. Paul says to put away all impurity and to live in imitation of Jesus. 
That did it. From then on, Augustine began a new life. And I thought that was a really cool mm-hmm. point right there. Of he, It's just something clicked in his head. He was like, here we are rolling in the mud of our sins, and there's people who are unlearned, who haven't gone to school like us, that are taking heaven by force, so he said. Yeah. It's just a, that's a cool realization that it doesn't matter how much you know, he recognized the sin in himself, and it had to be remedied. It wasn't being done through his knowledge. It's quite the quote, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty awesome. Um, One thing to mention uh, is that during all this time, as a pagan professor, he was also in a relationship with a young woman that he lived with for 15 years against his mother's wishes because it was an out-of-wedlock relationship, and um, he ended up actually having a child with her as well. And to make it even more awkward, and this is all at this time— I'm kind of doing it in chronological order. Mm -hmm. So it was at this time that he decided to uh, walk away from her. And I guess the more appropriate thing to do was to leave that woman in order to marry a teenage heiress. So he he was he walked away from her to do things the more proper way to have a proper wedding with a whole mm. other woman. Wow. Yeah, and uh, by the time she was actually old enough to get married to him, he had made the decision to become a priest instead. So that oh. that ended as well. <laughs> so it's a, it's a real crazy season of his life mm-hmm. where he came to the realization he had doubts in this religion he had been a professor of for nine years. Um, he has this thing with his woman, he broke off and then he, he's going to marry another woman. Just everything comes. It's almost like funneling to this main point where he comes to ground zero. Uh, pretty cool that, that he's coming to that point. Pretty rough way to get there. Yeah. So it was a, a pretty 180 degree change that he made at this point in his life. And I really enjoyed this last part of St. Augustine's story because, or this, this latter part of his life, because all of that schooling that he had gone through, all those years in learning how to teach um, through his pagan avenues, he employed all of that um, knowledge in how to teach into an extremely effective tactic for the gospel. And he was able to bring some extremely unique, almost apologetic-like based sermons that moved people like no one else of that time was able to do Mm -hmm. because of his education. Uh, it's noted that he preached six to 10,000 sermons while he was alive. That is wow. enormous, uh, 500 of which are still accessible today. And when he preached, stenographers would record the sermons. And these sermons would last uh, over an hour, typically, but he generally preached many times in a given week. Wow. So th- that's just that's a, a crazy thing to think about, that he preached that many sermons. It's mm-hmm. just an enormous amount of time yeah. Yeah. that one would take, you know, several times a week I, and probably more in certain weeks to get ten, close to 10,000 sermons. Yeah, but, that's a lot of prep. Yeah, it is. Um, or it's a lot of depending on the spirit, one of the two. Yeah. And from what I can tell, it looks like Augustine introduced the method of preaching that we still employ uh, today in in Western culture, in an elevated platform where he would walk back and forth towards the people in a way. Uh, one author writes, when he was preaching, he used a variety of rhetorical devices that included analogies, word pictures, similes, metaphors, repetition, and antithesis when trying to explain more about the Bible. 
In addition, he used questions and rhymes when talking about the differences between people's life on the earth and heaven as seen in one of his sermons that was preached in 412 A.D. Augustine believed that the preacher's ultimate goal is to ensure the salvation of their audience. So I thought that was a pretty admirable ending to such a rough beginning. And as far as the end of his life, he was officially made the Bishop of Hippo just after 395 A.D., and remained in that position until his death in 430 A.D. Wow. But that was really cool, I thought. that It's kind of his style that that launched into what we know today as going to church and listening to a sermon. Yeah. Pretty neat. Oh, that's neat to identify that. Yeah. And uh, just to wrap uh, Augustine up here, his death in sainthood, But shortly before his death, a Germanic tribe invaded and besieged Hippo in the spring of 430, which was the time that he was dying. But according to a certain uh, Pasidius, one of the few miracles attributed to Augustine was a healing of a sick man that took place during that siege. Um, One author notes the following about Augustine's final hours. Augustine spent his final days in prayer and repentance, requesting the penitential Psalms of David be hung on his walls so he could read them. Hmm. He directed the library of the church in Hippo, and all the books therein should be carefully preserved. He died on 28th of August, 430. Shortly after his death, the vandals lifted the siege of Hippo, but they returned soon after and burned the city. They destroyed all but Augustine's cathedral and library, which they left untouched. Augustine was canonized by popular acclaim and later recognized as a doctor of the church in 1298 by Pope Boniface VIII. Mm. His feast day is August 28th, the day which he died. He is considered the patron saint of brewers, printers, theologians, and a number of cities and dioceses. So he died there in that siege and... um, I, I thought it was an amazing life. Yeah. An amazing story from, from going, uh, being a professor of, of pagan religions and, and all that he went through to come to the point where God was like, yeah, you've been doing it this way for a long time, but even the skills you've learned in that, mm-hmm. I'm going to employ for my gospel. Yeah. And I just thought that was really cool. Yeah. And for him to get so discouraged and be like, I just... I don't know. I can't live in my sin. And then to hear a child singing, take up and read and finding um, what Paul wrote to the Romans and um, really becoming, I think, one of the church's most important theologians. There's so much that I've read from Augustine and like so many things that are attributed to him that have provided clarity to our doctrine. We certainly could have done an episode on Augustine Mm -hmm. himself, but I I condense. There's a lot. There's a lot more you could probably find out. And of course, there's the famous quote that you you mentioned in the last episode of his about the unity. Mm -hmm. So um, and I don't have it written down in front of me, but I, I think you have it memorized. And essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. It's yes. taken a long time for me to memorize that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's such a good one. And so yeah. It still rings so true today. So I found this, that somewhere on his wall, he wrote, Here we do not speak evil of anyone. Like yeah, it was in, I saw that. Uh, I just think that's such an interesting thing to think about, especially in the day and age of social media, <laughs> yeah. you know, no kidding. and people that are like, oh my gosh, the right wing and the left wing and the everything that could be said, 
these these crazy nuts and he's out there going we don't speak evil of anyone yeah and and i even found that that he had a quote of just i guess regret saying too late god have i loved you and um i don't know what part of his life he said that but I think this was just a man who was passionate after the Lord and, and really he came to find his savior and, and lived for him the whole time. Yeah. You know, from that point on. Yeah. It was a very, very neat story. Yeah. It touched me. Dude, you brought a lot. That's, that's awesome. Speaking of brewers, <laughs> I get to talk about St. Patrick, who really has nothing to do with brewers other than the fact that a lot of people choose to celebrate he Patrick's day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot of brewers depend on his day for their uh, for their livelihood because they um, they turn their drinks green. That is true. So uh, St. Patrick of Ireland is one of the world's most popular saints. Of course, we have his day. I think uh, the other saint that we know of, um, we didn't actually acknowledge in this. Uh, you know, I would love to do one on St. Valentine. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. My daughter would love that. That's her birthday. Oh, nice. <laughs> Uh, so Patrick was born in Roman Britain. I always thought that he was actually Irish, but he was born in Britain. And when he was 14 or so, he was captured by Irish pirates during a raiding party and taken to Ireland as a slave to herd and tend sheep. At the time, Ireland was a land full of druids and pagans, but Patrick turned to God and wrote his memoir, The Confession. In The Confession, he wrote, The love of God and his fear grew in me more and more, as did the faith. And my soul rose so that in a single day, I have said as many as a hundred prayers and in the night nearly the same. I have prayed in the woods and on the mountain, even before dawn. I felt no hurt from the snow or ice or rain." After six years of captivity, he heard a voice telling him that he would soon go home and then that his ship was ready. Fleeing his master, or his captor, really, he traveled to a port 200 miles away where he found a ship and with difficulty persuaded the captain to take him in. After three days sailing, they landed presumably in Britain and apparently all left the ship walking for 28 days in a wilderness and becoming faint from hunger. After Patrick prayed for sustenance, they encountered a herd of wild boar. Since this was shortly after Patrick had urged them to put their faith in God, his prestige in the group increased greatly. After various adventures, he returned home to his family, now in his early 20s. After returning home to Britain, Patrick continued to study Christianity. Wow. Yeah, kind of right out of the gate, uh, some interesting stuff. It's really interesting for me that a couple of the saints that you had had kind of like wild party living. Yeah. None of the ones that I got that I found had those type of that's, situations. That's they, weird because we totally like any mini money mode yeah, of the saints. Yeah, we did a we did a draft. We were like, who who do you got? Yeah. Um, so a few years after returning home, Patrick saw a vision in which he described in his memoir. He said, I saw a man coming, as it were, from Ireland. His name was Victoricus. That's an awesome name. And he carried many letters, and he gave me one of them. I read the heading, The Voice of the Irish. As I began the letter, I imagined in that moment that I heard a voice of those people who were near the wood of Fulclet. 
I don't have any idea if that's how to say it, which is beside the Western Sea. And they cried out as with one voice, we appeal to you, holy servant boy, to come and walk among us. This vision prompted his studies for the priesthood. He was ordained by St. Germanus, the Bishop of Oxford, I have no idea, <laughs> with whom he had studied for years. And he was later ordained a bishop and sent to take the gospel to Ireland. Patrick arrived in Slane, Ireland, on March 25th, 433. There are several legends about what happened next, the most prominent claiming that he met the chieftain of one of the Druid tribes who tried to kill him. After an intervention from God, Patrick was able to convert the chieftain and preach the gospel throughout Ireland. There he converted many people, eventually thousands, and he began building churches across the country. He often used shamrocks to explain the Holy Trinity and entire kingdoms were eventually converted to Christianity after hearing Patrick's message. Patrick preached and converted all of Ireland for 40 years. He worked many miracles and wrote of his love for God in his book, The Confessions. After years of living in poverty, traveling and enduring much suffering, he died March 17th, 461. He died at Saul, which is where he built his first Irish church. He is believed to be buried in Down Cathedral, Downpatrick. His grave was marked in 1990 with a granite stone. Of all the things that he wrote, this is probably the most famous. Christ be within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ inquired, Christ in danger, Christ in hearts of all that love me, Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. And uh, I, I've heard that poem. We've sung it in several different songs. I think there's a Leland song out right now that is really um, catchy and very, like, I, I don't know how to say it other than just beautiful. And um, it's really neat to see that incorporated in one of the things that he wrote. Um, in terms of myths, I, I did want to look this up. Did St. Patrick drive out the snakes? Among the legends associated with St. Patrick is that he stood atop an Irish hillside and banished snakes from Ireland, prompting all serpents to slither away into the sea. In fact, research suggests that snakes never occupied the Emerald Island in the first place. There are no signs of snakes in the country's fossil record, and water has surrounded Ireland uh, since the last glacial period. Before that, the region was covered in ice and would have been too cold for the cold-blooded reptiles. So that was just a myth. Yeah, that was just a myth. I've that... heard so many people preach that as gospel truth. Oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. I was like, you know, there are. Um, there's even a theory about two different Patricks that lived in Ireland, and I didn't go too far into that I because oh, okay. I didn't think that it had much credence. There's just... There's a lot of myths surrounding some of these saints and and him driving out the snakes I always thought was hilarious because I've even seen it depicted in different illustrations. Yeah. So I thought that was fascinating. That is. Yeah. I, I was kind of... My ears perked up when you mentioned that because I was yeah. like, I, I've heard this one before. So I just wonder, what does an Irish pirate sound like? <laughs> I, 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 I smell a joke coming. Oh, I don't know. Oh, okay. I, yeah, I wish I had a joke. <laughs> uh, I don't know. That's funny. My Irish accent is not... That's not it at all. <laughs> that's funny. You know, it's it's not the story that you connect with St. Patrick's Day, is it? No. 
Not at all. And I guess St. Patrick's Day was actually first, um, like the way that it's celebrated now was actually first celebrated in America. <laughs> you know, they have, a, they have a feast day for him. And, and I found this interesting. I read that he was never formally canonized according to the way that the Catholic rules were, but they've since remedied that. But it's just, it's, there's a lot of interesting things surrounding him because again, he's not actually Irish. He was taken there as a, as a captive and then escaped and then went back. And there's just so many uh, fascinating things about that story. And now people just use it to pinch each other if they're not wearing green. Yeah. Right. No kidding. (laughs) I'm, it's nice to hear, to hear the real story behind it. Cause it's, it's such a, as we, we do with so many holidays, it's so distorted and, and and there's no truth to what the origins were. Exactly. Yeah. That's a really cool story to hear how he planted all those churches Mm -hmm. and his beginnings of it. It seemed like he he was seeking after God from an early age. Yeah. Well, and, and that is one thing that I'll mention. And, you know, when we look for application, he actually, um, he grew up in a religious family, but he himself at that time, uh, at the age of 14 was actually rejecting Jesus oh, and wow. rejecting, um, religion altogether. And so when he was taken captive, it actually made him seek the Lord. And while he was, um, a slave as a, as a, um, a sheep herder or a shepherd, that's when he, um, grew in his faith and that's when he converted to Christianity. So, it's almost that. through the difficulty yeah. that he found Jesus. That's so, really cool. Yeah, there's there's so many places where we can say that, unfortunately, through sometimes our pain is where we find the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, so, that's a great thing yeah, to hear from his story. Yeah, I thought that was really neat. Awesome. So, St. Patrick. St. Patrice. I'll have a little bit more knowledge as that holiday rolls around each year. Now. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that's cool. All right. Well, moving along, um, I bring Ignatius of Antioch. Nice. Uh, as I got started, Come forth, Ignatius. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> as I got into looking at Ignatius here, I I realized that there was no actual record of his early life until the time he was arrested. Um, so right out of the gate, we got a spoiler alert. He hmm. was he was arrested, um, but. When I realized this, uh, that my notes would skip over his entire beginning, I uh, I praised God because he was the last of my three appointed saints for this episode. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not gonna lie, I was mentally exhausted after this study. It was it was a it was a doozy. So I hope that didn't sound terrible. But either way, let's get into the records of what we do have on Ignatius of Antioch. Starting off, we know that Ignatius was an influential church leader and theologian. The era that he became known for was around 98 to 117 AD when the transition from Judaism to Christianity was taking place during that era. And it's noted that Ignatius likely was directly influenced by the firsthand reading of some of Paul's letters, which I thought was just Mm -hmm. super cool. Uh, as well as the possibility that he personally knew the Apostle John. So we're talking about a saint who was very ground zero. And to continue, he was the Bishop of Antioch when he was arrested. And remember, this was a couple hundred years before Constantine made Christianity the official religion in Rome. So Christians, especially Christians of leadership uh, positions, were being persecuted heavily 
And that's just what happened to Ignatius here. And what happened was a unit of soldiers had put him in chains and gathered him up like I'm sure they did quite a few other Christians as they they passed through the regions. And they headed for Troas where they were going to regroup and head to Rome. And apparently Ignatius, he was well known enough among the fellow believers at that point that they followed this escort out of town with him. And for an unknown reason, their trip was interrupted at Smyrna. And that local bishop by the name of Polycarp, who we have Mm, done, that was your saint, he warmly welcomed him and turned out to become a dear friend of Ignatius. Um, Really, really cool thing. They they were right in that same era, so this is cool to re-dive into that. Yeah. So while he was at this standstill in Smyrna, elders, deacons, and bishops from many of the surrounding churches came to visit him and tend to his needs. And it was this loving outpour of kindness from his brothers and sisters that made a real lasting impact on Ignatius, which led to the following letters that he would send in response. And he, it's really cool because he sent letters to Ephesus, Magnesia, Trollis, Rome, Philadelphia, and Smyrna. And we'll recognize several of those churches. I mean, we think mm-hmm. of Philadelphia. We read about them in uh, Revelation mm-hmm. um, and in several of those. So we, it's really cool to see a saint that's not in the Bible. He was walking about the same time as, as Paul and them as they were going to these same regions. But he also wrote a letter to Polycarp where he had asked him to write in his name to other churches. And we know that Polycarp did end up writing to the church of Philippi about Ignatius passing through their city and what was transpiring with all of that with his arrest. But as far as his letters to the churches, they would be very familiar because he warned about false doctrine, just like we see in Paul's letters. But the two most obvious groups that he went after were the Judaizers, who, again, we should be familiar with. They try to reinstate the law after what Jesus did. And also um, Docetus, who held that Christ had suffered and died only in appearance. And one interesting thing I saw in these letters were we see for the first time in Christian literature the phrase Catholic Church which simply means the church as a whole, wherever there is a congregation. But I thought that was kind of cool. That's the first mention in Christian literature of Catholic Church where that phrase was used. But um, kind of wrapping his story up uh, with his letter to Rome, which he's he's most noted for. It was his longest letter by far. But in that letter, it becomes pretty obvious that he's obsessed with martyrdom. Like, it's it's his destiny. Mm-hmm. And I, one author writes the following about this. This longing for martyrdom has sometimes been interpreted as a neurotic obsession. Although the language used by Ignatius in voicing this desire does not often sound exaggerated, his attitude was shared by many Christians of his time. For Ignatius, love of martyrdom ultimately springs from a deep conviction that only by union with Christ's passion will he participate in Christ's glory. Even this belief does not free him from the fear that he might recoil in the face of death, and he asks the churches to pray for his strength and constancy. So, it's an extremely hardcore stance that he took, and it did in fact lead to his death, which was recorded 
um, by a disciple of Polycarp by the name of Irenaeus, which is totally someone we will have to yes. revisit because I, I can't wait to get into his story. Mm-hmm. But it was Irenaeus that recorded Ignatius' death in the Roman arena by being thrown to wild beasts and torn to pieces, mm-hmm. which um, I think back to, to your saint, Polycarp, who that was the first thing that they were going to do to him, wasn't it? Well, yeah. Was that the fire? I can't remember because it was a beast and then the fire, they I think. Were, yeah, they were considering, and then I think they didn't want to feed an 86-year-old to beast. Yeah, they were trying to persuade him. <laughs> yeah. Because of your age, we yeah. can't. But the crowd had a bloodlust. and yeah. yeah, as they did back yeah. then. But, uh, yeah, it was it was his destiny in his mind to, to suffer the way Christ did. Um, it, it was how he wanted to be unified with Christ. And I, I think he had a hardcore belief in that he, at the very end moment, if he didn't do it just right, he might not be unified. But uh, I, I think that we know that we rest in what Christ has done, not our last moment of, of fear mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's quite a quite a story of Ignatius there. Uh, there. There wasn't near as much as some of the others because we just don't know what happened no. um, at the beginning of his life. But there did seem to be some folklore thrown into the mix after the fact about Ignatius' literal heart having Jesus' name inscribed in gold lettering on it, like literally. Okay. When they found his heart from being torn wow. to pieces, they said that. And, and obviously, <laughs> that's something brought long after, and I would consider it mythological because mm-hmm. that's how those things just go. Sure. But uh, that is the one one folklore, that, a piece of folklore that I saw, that they, they were picking pieces of his body up after the animals got done with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Pretty, pretty gruesome. But yeah. That, a lot of the deaths for Christians back then were. Yeah. Um, there is that quote that Paul says, like, I withstood the mouth of the lion or something, which a lot of people have wondered if he even was near an arena where um, there were saints being martyred by getting fed to wild animals. That's something to think about. And some, someone else has said that it was more of a reference to, like, Satan. But I, I don't know. It's yeah. Just, it's an interesting That thought. is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, because they're not far off. I mean, the persecution has really ramped up at this point, mm-hmm. and we know that soon Nero is doing what he's doing, and uh, it's just crazy. They're burning him at the stake. They yeah. crucified Peter upside down. They threw James, the brother of Jesus, off a high hill, and when he didn't die from that, they stoned him. What, uh, wasn't it Peter that was sawn in half? No, he was crucified upside down. He was crucified upside down. He was sawn in half? Uh, I think it was James, the oh, brother James. of John. Oh, James. That's what you said. Yeah. Okay. Well, James, the brother of Jesus, was thrown off a high place and then stoned. That's right. James, the brother of John, was sawn in half. Yeah. Uh, Paul was potentially sawn in half as well, oh, depending okay. on who you've heard from. John, the apostle, they tried to boil him in oil, but it didn't work, so they banished him to the Isle of Patmos. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, where he wrote Revelation. Yeah, exactly. And they, I mean, they were doing everything they could to gather these Christians up in that early time. I mean, mm-hmm. wasn't it Nero that burned his own city down and then blamed it on the Christians? Yes, and there are some that say that he dipped Christians in wax and used them as candles. Yeah. So just uh, a gruesome. Yeah. Uh, persecution. Yeah. And and that's the only thing is like reading through Fox's Book of Martyrs, it seems like there's almost this weird spiritual um, 
confidence or uh, just contentment that comes across people's minds or comes upon them that allows them to go through that martyrdom without like the extreme, I don't know, the extreme fear and, yeah. And like, <laughs> I've, I've always been kind of a believer. I've always been a believer that in, in, in cases, God does give us a spiritual um, boost of, of adrenaline yeah, and stamina yeah. to get through that stuff. Yeah. I think he does. I know that the pain would be excruciating and things like that, but it just, there are, there are plenty of accounts where the person didn't cry out at all. Yeah. They just endured it and then they died. Yeah. So I, I don't know if I'm saying it the right way that I want to, but it's really um, interesting to read some of these stories, and it's so sad to see such a great man killed by, you know, wild beasts. Yeah. But we're gonna get to meet him and hear more about uh, what it was like for him growing up. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And and I think of Paul's words of. I don't think anything, I'm completely paraphrasing this, but (laughs) nothing in this world is going to be held um, in comparison with the glory to to come. Yes. Amen. All right. So uh, this was funny because we talked about the draft that we did of these saints and I kind of got, I think I got more like, um, at least my last two are more token saints. Popcorn (laughs) saints. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Because I I got, I got St. Nicholas. So... um, (laughs) I mean, it's really hard to not talk about Father Christmas uh, when you're yeah. talking about saints. St. Patrick and St. Nick. Yeah, yeah. One's wearing green and I one's wearing red. I didn't mean to do that to you. I'm okay. just saying. I just yeah. put my finger on the paper and literally chose one. Well, I think I did that to you because you got the meteor ones that took a little bit longer uh, study-wise. Well, but so. I'm glad because I, I really actually grew in this. So, yeah, so. yeah. I understand. Uh, so St. Nicholas, also known as Nicholas of Mira. <laughs> I just love the way you pronounce that. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, was a fourth century saint and the Greek bishop of Myra. Myra, Myra. I'm going to say Myra. Nicholas was born in Asia Minor in the Roman Empire as an only child to Christian parents. Uh, and he was exceedingly well brought up by his parents and he trod piously in their footsteps. He was watched over by the church, and he enlightened his mind and encouraged his thirst for sincere and true religion. Both of his parents tragically died in an epidemic when he was a young man, leaving him well off, but to be raised by his uncle, the Bishop of Patara. Nicholas was determined to devote his inheritance to works of charity, and his uncle mentored him as a reader and later ordained him as a presbyter or a priest." An opportunity soon arose for St. Nicholas and his inheritance. A citizen of Patara had lost all of his money and needed to support his three daughters who could not find husbands because of their poverty. So the wretched man was going to give them over to prostitution. Nicholas became informed of this and thus took a bag of gold and threw it into an open window of the man's house in the night. Here was the dowry for the eldest girl and she was soon duly married. At intervals, Nicholas did the same for the second and the third. At the last time, the father was on the watch, recognized his benefactor, and overwhelmed Nicholas with his gratitude. It would appear that the three persons represented in pictures came to be mistaken for the heads of three children, and so they gave rise to the absurd story of the children resuscitated by the saint who had been killed by an innkeeper and pickled in a brine tub. Coming to the city of Myra... (laughs) Yeah, there's more (laughs) stories about that in a minute here. 
Coming to the city of Myra, when the clergy and the people of the province were in session to elect a new bishop, Nicholas was indicated by God as the man they should choose. This was during the time of persecutions in the beginning of the 4th century, and as he was the chief priest of the Christians in this town and preached the truths of the faith with holy liberty, Nicholas was seized by the magistrates, tortured, then chained, and thrown into prison with many other Christians. But when the great and religious Constantine, chosen by God, assumed the imperial diadem of the Romans, the prisoners were released from their bonds, and with them the illustrious Nicholas, who, when he was set at liberty, returned to Myra. So just like you were talking about with Constantine, Mm -hmm. seeing that image of the the burning cross uh, when he was out doing certain things, he had that vision, and he uh, adopted Christianity as the as the faith of the nation. Wow. St. Methodius asserts that thanks to the teaching of St. Nicholas, the metropolis of Myra alone was untouched by the filth of the Arian heresy, which it firmly rejected as a death-dealing poison. But it says nothing of his presence at the Council of Nicaea in 325. According to other traditions, St. Nicholas was not only there during the Council of Nicaea, but so far forgot himself as to give the heresiarch Arius a slap in the face. The conciliar fathers deprived him of his episcopal insignia and committed him to prison, but our Lord appeared there and restored him to liberty and to his office. This is all like, again, conjecture. And I guess it was having to deal with the Council of Nicaea was where, um, isn't that where the canon was confirmed? Yeah, that's where they put together what books go. Yeah, so it sounds like he was dealing with this uh, Arianism. Uh, and Nazis. And, yeah. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> that's the first thing I thought of. And so um, he was just battling against whatever this, this uh, pagan... I guess, um, practice was or, or whatever this heresy was. Uh, it's just interesting to think of father Christmas punching a dude at a church meeting because that's kind of what he did. So, um, let's see there. There's just more. (laughs) (laughs) I'm intrigued. Um, Okay. So as we continue on, there's more stories. St. Nicholas' presence was found in a separate occasion involving three imperial officers simply on their way to duty in Phygria. When the men were back again in Constantinople, the jealousy of their prefect, Ablevius, caused them to be in prison on false charges, and an order for their death was procured by the Emperor Constantine. When the officers heard this, they remembered the example they had witnessed of the powerful love of the justice of the Bishop of Myra, and they prayed to God that through his merits and by his instrumentality that they might be saved. That night, St. Nicholas appeared in a dream to Constantine and told him with threats to release the three innocent men, and Ablavius experienced the same thing. In the morning, the emperor and the prefect compared notes, and the condemned men were sent for and questioned. When they had heard that they called on the name of Nicholas of Myra, who appeared to him, Constantine sent them free and sent them to the bishop with a letter asking him not to threaten him any more, but to pray for the peace of the world. For a long time, this has been the most famous miracle of St. Nicholas, and at the time of St. Methodius, this was the only thing that was generally known about him. So there are these stories that are beginning to pop up about um, St. Nicholas and some of the things that he did. Yeah. 
Uh, there is another story after his death. It says, At Myra, the venerable body of the bishop, embalmed as it was in the good ointments of virtue, exuded a sweet-smelling myrrh, which kept it from corruption and proved a health-giving remedy against the sickness of the glory of him who had glorified our true God. The translation of the relics did not interrupt this phenomenon, and the manna of St. Nicholas, that's in quotes, is said to flow to this day. It is one of the great attractions that drew pilgrims to his tomb in all parts of Europe. And so this manna that is said to have formed after his death on December 6th of uh, 343 is a liquid substance that's said to have healing powers fostered the growth of devotion to Nicholas. The anniversary of his death became a day of celebration, St. Nicholas Day, December 16th or December 19th on the Julian calendar. Just to, to clarify, where is this mana oozing of mana coming from? What what is what is it? Is this coming from his embalmed body? It's from his grave. That's nasty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know who's touching it. I don't know who's that's, dealing with it. That's, it's, I'm hoping uh, this is just a, a legend. Yeah, I I would assume so. I, I just. Re- I recently saw an article where uh, in a very wet part of the country, uh, bodies would float to the top and someone saw hair coming out <laughs> oh, from the, yeah, that just, I just, I'm just yeah. mystified hearing so, some of that. Okay. So manna for us has always been bread from heaven. Yes. Um, but it's interesting that if you're involved in any type of like, I'm trying to think of how to say it, like swords and sorcery kind of video games okay the, a lot of time they use mana as like a healing potion right. um and that's like what you drink that that empowers your magic or, they've adopted or, that name for that type of thing yeah and i didn't know if maybe that's where this came from but that that would make sense yeah, I just remember seeing um, there are some even old school NES games where it was like the Secret of Mana, I think is what it's called. And it, and when you I have think I've seen some of that, more yeah. mana, you have more magic or you have more healing powers or whatever. Yeah. So I don't know. I I find it fascinating. Um, that would be a elixir in my Clash of Clans. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but really for him, I guess the origin of Santa Claus was all about the fact that he was a wealthy man who had this inheritance after his family died, after his parents died, and he obeyed Jesus's words to sell what he owned and to give the money to the poor. And so he used that inheritance to assist the sick, the needy, and the suffering. It sounded very familiar when he threw the bags of gold through the windows. Yes, that yes. sounds like old chimney sweeping Nick that we that we know of exactly. today. Exactly. <laughs> the bags of gold tossed through an open window are said to have landed in stockings or shoes left to dry yeah, by the fire. This led to the custom of children hanging stockings or pulling out shoes, eagerly awaiting gifts from St. Nicholas. Sometimes the story is told with gold balls instead of bags of gold. That's why three gold balls, sometimes representative oranges, are the symbols for St. Nicholas. And so St. Nicholas is a gift giver. 
Okay. So, um, <laughs> sorry, I, I just have a couple more stories because it yeah. kind of gets really interesting with some of these things. Um, one of the oldest stories showing St. Nicholas as a protector of children takes place long after his death. The townspeople of Myra were celebrating the good saint on the eve of his feast day when a band of Arab pirates from Crete came into the district. They stole treasures from the church of St. Nicholas to take away his booty, which is always a fun sentence to say. Uh, and as they were leaving town, they snatched a young boy named Basilios to make into a slave. The emir or ruler selected Basilios to be his personal cupbearer. As not knowing the language, Basilios would not understand what the king said to him and those around him. So for the next year, Basilius waited on the king bringing his wine in the beautiful golden cup. For Basilius's parents, devastated at the loss of their only child, the year passed slowly, filled with grief. As the next St. Nicholas feast day approached, Basilius's mother would not join in the festivity, as it is now a day of tragedy. However, she was persuaded to have a simple observance at home with quiet prayers for Basilius's safekeeping. Meanwhile, as Basilius was fulfilling his tasks, serving the emir, he was suddenly whisked up and away. St. Nicholas appeared to the terrified boy, blessed him, and set him down back home in Myra. Imagine the joy and wonderment when Basilius appeared before his parents, still holding the king's golden cup. This is the first story told of St. Nicholas protecting children, which became his primary role in the West. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, another story tells of three theological students traveling on their way to study in Athens. A wicked innkeeper robbed them and murdered them, hiding their remains in a large pickling tub. It so <laughs> happened that Bishop Nicholas, traveling along the same route, stopped at this very inn. In the night, he dreamed of the crime, got up, and summoned the innkeeper. As Nicholas prayed earnestly to God, the three boys were restored to life and wholeness. In France, the story is told of three small children wandering in their play until lost, lured and captured by an evil butcher. St. Nicholas appears and appeals to God to return them to life and to their families. And so St. Nicholas is the patron and protector of young children. There's just there's a lot of stories where somehow yeah. he raised people back back to life. I, I think it's really interesting. Um, that's a lot of where we get Christmas is just him using his wealth uh, to bless people and especially the poor. So. so as I hear you describing all of that from his early time to now, uh, well, not to now, but you know what I mean, yeah. throughout his life, uh, it, it seems like it might be difficult to to pull apart, to separate some of the fables from the real. Or is, mm -hmm. is did there seem as you were studying that that there was there was some definite things, or was it kind of hard to tell the two? To me, there there are a lot of fish stories yeah. that are hard to separate. Like, I mean, clearly the man was a real man, and he really yes. he lived a real life. It's just it starts to blend i think the fantastical with the 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 real yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and um it's hard to say it, it kind of reminds me of big fish do you remember that that movie i just watched that last like three days ago oh okay yeah where the dad would tell the story yes. and the son was like just tell me the truth and you know um yes. maybe there's nuggets of like reality in some of it but mm -hmm. some of it just got exaggerated so hard to say 
Yeah. I think he'd be an interesting person to meet and really hear his story. Cause I'm sure that again, there are some truths to this. Finding out that a guy was going to put his daughters into prostitution because he couldn't afford that. If that story is true, where he came and, and was able to yeah. basically heave ho their dowry up into an open yeah. window, that's pretty fascinating. That's pretty cool. That really is. So yeah, I, I could, I could literally read for about 20 more minutes some of these other stories, and I don't think they're going to benefit us at all. But if you want to look into some interesting, just, I guess, maybe quote unquote mythology, you can um, Google stories about St. Nicholas. Yeah, that's, that's really intriguing. There's also a really interesting story about him living in the North Pole and having reindeer that can fly. I thought I thought you were gonna say it's where we get the North Pole thing no. from. Very, very well played. <laughs> I, I, my ears perked again. I was like, no, no, no. that's great. Sorry. Chris <laughs> and then I saw your eyes slowly go into Garfield eyes. I was like, oh, you dog. Chris Kringle, Santa Claus. Yeah, he's yeah. also got a uh, Santa Claus with an E. Where if you take on the suit, you become the Santa. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've watched too many of those movies. That's great. <laughs> One thing before I forget that I was I was thinking about as you were talking about the fantastical stories as they grew, um, that that's one thing that separates the the can the real canonized Bible from mm-hmm. from this legend type stuff. It seems that these not to say these saints didn't have you know extraordinary um, experiences and how God used them and whatnot, but the, the stories become fantastical more so as the years go on yeah. into more legend into more crazy it's, I don't mean to say crazy but it, it sounds crazy almost but the bible in the characters in it, it it's you see the flaws even in at the deathbed of some of these guys oh, and yeah. it, there seems to be a lot more honesty of, about the character rather than fantastical you know yeah because I you know I've I've heard some scholars try to to say, oh, the 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 Book of Kings and Samuel try to do that with David. They try oh, to make wow. him more fantastical than he is, but they they say you can unspin that. Well, I, I don't think so because it shows Solomon what he, mm-hmm. he what he grew into because of what David did and yes. all that. So I I, th- I look at some of these characters uh, that that we discussed tonight, and it the you can see where the myths got bigger and bigger fish stories mm-hmm. as it went on, and uh, that's that's just something interesting i thought of yeah as, as you especially ending with saint nick i mean yes. that's just a, that's a lot <laughs> yeah yeah i it was one of those where i kept just reading and reading and researching and i'm like there's just i'm glad this isn't in the bible <laughs> yeah exactly exactly where that was my point yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is exactly what i said earlier about yeah the, yeah you yeah, touched on that yeah. i was just bringing it yeah. back no i like it that's funny <laughs> call back so yeah, I I enjoyed this. I think again we should revisit it either annually or yeah. you know it de- it depends on you listeners. What did you think about this? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I really enjoyed the study myself. Like I said, I didn't at first. I was like, oh, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> I didn't need a project. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
but it, I really enjoyed it, and I, I grew through this study of, of taking away from us, especially for me, St. Augustine. That that one hit mm-hmm. me hard, just yeah. uh, seeing his dedication and, and what his life turned into. And yeah. So we hope hope it did the same for y'all throughout discussing all six of these guys. Absolutely. Two episodes. Yes. Yeah, and if there's anyone that we missed that you're like, hey, next time you revisit this, can you speak about this saint? Yeah. Or I'm sure maybe... we'll get a listener say, uh, any that you missed, there's a few more saints. Yeah. <laughs> or if there's some inaccuracies that you're like, oh my gosh, you totally yeah. misrepresented this. What then, site did you go yeah, to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who did you plagiarize for this? Oh, that's funny. Uh, yeah. So No, yeah. Send them, send them our way. Absolutely. Uh, connect at beasnakebird.com or use Facebook. It's for grandmas and for connecting with us. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Please reach out to us, guys. We're so glad that you came back to uh, to hear the part two and that you come back every week. Please give us ideas. Reach out if you need prayers, all of that. Please reach out. We love being here with y'all. Yep. And if you can leave a review or share our uh, share our weekly episode on your page, whatever it is, that goes a long way. And if nothing else, just keep engaging with us. That's what makes this keep going. So That's right. We really appreciate you as a listener. And we want to remind you that whatever you do, wherever you go, no matter what life throws at you, <laughs> even some tall tale St. Nick stories, <laughs> there's never been a better time to follow the words of Jesus and be a snake bird. <laughs>